I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Mary Beth O'Connor, author of From Junkie to Judge, One Woman's Triumph Over Trauma and Addiction. Meet former meth addict turned federal judge Mary Beth O'Connor, author of From Junkie to Judge, who details her inspiring story or journey from rock bottom to resilience as she forged a personal path to recovery from trauma and addiction. Mary Beth shares her remarkable three-phase journey, the abuse and trauma that drove her to teenage drug use, the chaos that ensued from her addiction, and how she developed a personalized secular recovery plan that led to 29 years of sobriety. After attending Berkeley Law, in 2014, she was appointed a federal administrative law judge, which uh, the position she held until 2020. She's a director, secretary, and founding investor for She Recovers Foundation and a director for Life Ring Secular Recovery. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on, Mary Beth. Thank you. Thanks for having me. The word that stands out for me is secular because most or many, let's say, many People that I've interviewed, memoirs, et cetera, talk about spirituality, religion, all of those things help them to become sober. But in your case, it was not the, well, in your case, it wasn't the case. You had a secular recovery plan. Um, So let's start with that. What does that mean exactly? So the recovery programs, generally other than 12 steps, are not as higher power focused. They're more self-empowerment focused. So when I got sober in 1994, they actually told me that the only program was 12 steps, which is, you know, AA, NA, and, and the others. But it turned out that that wasn't true, and it wasn't a good fit for me for multiple reasons. I don't believe in a higher power, but I also didn't like the powerless idea or turning my will and my life over. So I really decided to take control of my recovery and to keep my ears and mind open, including at 12-step meetings and in their, you know, their books, for the ideas I thought would be useful to me and to incorporate those. And then I found other peer support groups, of which today there are many. So I built it from the concepts that others shared or that I read about, but filtering them through, will this work for me? You started out, uh, let's get, maybe go back to the beginning, and you start you from rock bottom to resilience, I guess. is I don't know if I mentioned that in the, in the uh, intro, but that's really, you had to get to rock bottom, and then you, the path was to resilience. How did you get there? What happened? How did you get to rock bottom in the first place? Well, I will say that we don't believe now that you need to hit a a horrible bottom in order to recover. In fact, it's recommended that people intervene in a substance use disorder as early as possible. People die waiting for some fantasy rock bottom. But I did have a low bottom. I started using alcohol, which was my first drug at 12. I had moved on through several drugs to meth at 16. I was shooting up at 17. And I did not get sober until I was 32 years old. So it was a long haul. And by 32, I was having a lot of physical problems. I was beyond exhausted. I was completely debilitated, feeling hopeless. So I was in a pretty bad state at the time that I entered uh, recovery when I was 32 years old. But you started when you were really young. You said you started, you were 12 years old. So what happened? What, what, what was the abuse? What was the trauma? What precipitated all of this? And the other thing is, I was reading your memoir. I mean, you, you, know, you, 
you know, taking tests, graduate, do really well in school, even though you're doing all these drugs and drinking, et cetera. So, which seems impossible to me, but you did it um, and we're doing it. Um, yeah. So what precipitated, let's start from the beginning, the drinking, so the drugs. My, my yeah. mother really wasn't connected to me. She wasn't focused on me at all, which actually had a bigger impact than I realized until later. Um, and she was somewhat violent, but the bigger problem arose when she married my stepfather when I was nine, who was very violent with her. He was verbally, emotionally, physically, and sexually violent with me. And it was just the kind of household where you never knew what might set him off. And so it was a lot of stress, a lot of lack of control. So when I found alcohol at 12, my first experience with it was Boone's Farm Strawberry Hill wine, and it felt it was a positive experience. I felt lighter, like a weight had been lifted off my shoulders. And I noticed that. I paid attention to that. And I started pursuing alcohol pretty much right from the beginning. So it was attractive because it seemed to work in the beginning. Do you think there was anybody in your environment at that time who could have helped you if they had been aware of what was happening? I mean, it's possible that teachers might have, but as you say, I did really well in school, and so they weren't looking for a problem because I was doing well academically. I could get verbally aggressive later in my teen years with teachers sometimes, but overall, I seemed to be doing fine, and no one noticed that there was a serious problem, and I didn't tell anyone, which is common. I mean, even my girlfriend who lived three houses up knew, knew things were going on but had no idea how bad it was until in our adult lives when I shared it with her. So, in other words, you were really good at hiding your problem. I mean, which, you know, for all those years, I guess, or for all those years in school, which I find uh, amazing uh, that you were able to do that. And uh, e even with friends or people that you associated with, there was really no one who could say, okay, this is enough. Like you said, you don't have to hit rock bottom necessarily, or one doesn't have to. I mean, the police came to our house several times. My stepfather was actually arrested once. It isn't it that the neighbors didn't know there were things going on. I, they just didn't understand the severity of it. And so, no, there was no one who intervened. And, and remember, for me, at school, school was my one positive place, my one positive experience. I, I got special treatment at school. Teachers noticed me. I was seen. I was valued for sort of personality traits and abilities that I had. So I wanted to keep that positive relationship with school, and it just didn't occur to me to turn to them for help. And as I remember, you got, what, 99 percentile in all your tests on the Iowa test or whatever it was, thinking that you didn't get 100 percent, but not realizing. <laughs> yes, that, I yeah. was very upset at my 99s. And I went home in tears until my mother tried to explain to me that it was a percentile and 99 was the highest. And this was just part of the anxiety that I developed at a very early age. Some of my earliest memories are when I was four and I was developing soothing techniques techniques and so had some OCD-like tendencies. So the thought that I had not had perfect scores on this standardized test just created such a wave of panic in me that my one special place, I was going to lose it because I wasn't perfect. It's an example of that anxiety that was underneath as far back as I can remember. 
in the beginning in the intro too I, I talked about the three phase journey what what was what is the, the three phase journey what was it for you so in the book, I really wanted to do a couple things. One is I felt like a lot of memoirs jump into the addiction and don't show where it came from. And so I wanted to really show that connection between trauma and substance use disorder, which is a very strong type. The data shows I was four to six times as likely to develop a substance use disorder. Or the flip side of that is that about 75 to 80% of people with a substance use disorder have a trauma history. So I wanted to show that. But then there's, you know, the normal chaos of addiction to really make it clear how bad it was. But 30% of the book is about recovery. And part of that was I did do it the, the less common way. I mean, many other people do it a similar way to what I did, particularly today. But it's not the, the predominant, well-known 12-step way. But so I wanted to show what my thought process was and how I was attacking my recovery. But not just my substance recovery, but my trauma recovery, my PTSD recovery, my anxiety recovery, all of it. So can we break it down into those three phases? Like you're talking, yeah, not a 12-step recovery, but a three-phase. What does it actually mean? Because, you know, it, what it, you say a third of the book is uh, covers your how you got to your sobriety. Let's talk about that. How did you get there? What happened? So when they told me, you know, that the 12 steps was the only way, I, I knew that wasn't going to work. And so, I, as I said, I started looking for the ideas I could use. And then, I mean, I read all of the AA Big Book and all of the NA tests. I actively participated in rehab. I wasn't shutting my ears because I knew it wasn't the right fit. I was actively looking for the parts that I thought I could apply. And then when I got home, and I do emphasize it's 1994, there was no Google, okay? I went to the library to to research, are there other peer support groups that they didn't tell me about? And there were, and there are even more today. So someone today would look at Life Ring Secular Recovery, which, as you said, I'm on the board. There's She Recovers Foundation. There's Women for Sobriety. There's Smart Recovery. There's Dharma. And so there are a number of options where people can look at the philosophy, look at the meeting format, and find the one that looks like the right fit. And the other side of that is you don't even have to pick one. I attended multiple programs and pulled ideas from multiple places. No one I knew did that at the time, but today we would call that a hybrid or a patchwork plan. So there's much more acceptance and understanding that that one plan doesn't fit everyone and that it can be really beneficial to sort of make the decisions in your recovery about what is going to work for you. Yeah. So what that message is, is there are a lot of choices out there now. It's not 1994, it's 2023. Uh, patchwork, you can do it in different ways. There isn't just the 12-step program or programs that uh, emulate that. So I, I think that's an important point. You know, women and sobriety or women and drinking, it's always been a lot of stigma attached to women and drinking. I know some of the maybe older statistics, if a, if a partner had a, a wife or a partner who was an alcoholic, men leave. Whereas women stay if their partner is, is an alcoholic or even an addict. Uh, has that changed? And what's the difference? You know, this. let's talk about the women for sobriety because that sounds like a very special group that uh, may answer some of these questions that I'm asking you. 
Well, I will say that one of the fundamental ideas of the founder of Women's First Sobriety was she felt, and, and I do want to make clear, I support 12 steps when it's the right fit for people, absolutely. But the Women's First Sobriety founder felt that the focus on defects and sort of humility and accepting that you were, resp- you know, wrong a lot, that you had done a lot of wrongs, that that wasn't the right focus for women. She felt women had been beaten down so much already. What they needed was to be built up. And so, for example, in a woman for sobriety meeting, when you introduce yourself, you don't say, I'm Mary Beth and I'm an addict. You say, I'm Mary Beth and I'm a competent woman. That's the introduction. So it's very self-empowerment focused. Similar for She Recovers Foundation. They're focused on you getting to wholeness, you know, a, getting full acceptance. There's a focus on the mind-body connection, yoga uh, and dance. Um, so there are a lot of programs that are very supportive for women that take a more affirmation, positive thinking, uh, and self-empowerment approach. So the self-empowerment approach is obviously that sounds very different than I am uh, Mary Beth and, and I'm an addict. Uh, this And the self-empowerment approach, particularly I would think for women, I would, I, I'm going back to that because it seems to me women tend to uh, blame themselves that, you know, that if they have a problem, a mental health problem or addiction problem, it's all their fault and that this kind of gets away from that, it seems to me, right? This, this, yeah. Well, that, that is part of it. And the reality is that a lot of women have had problems with men being abusive in various ways. And so a woman only organization can be a safer place for them. She Recovers, for example, isn't just about substance use disorder. It's also for recovery from trauma, from mental health, from self-harm, eating disorders, all of it in one place, because the reality is that very high percentage of women who get into uh, substance uses uh, and use substances and then into recovery also have challenges or have to recover from other things like trauma or they have related mental health. So being in a place where you can talk about all of that with other women is a a safer environment and a a very supportive environment for many. So now that you achieve sobriety, what? well, you've had 29 years, are there any times when you feel like you're slipping, you could go back, um, and what do you do and how do you handle that? No, for most of us, it is a misnomer to think that we're struggling every day with our recovery. I mean, certainly the first couple years, those are the critical parts. As I say, going from 28 years to 29 is not the hard part. <laughs> it's the first couple years where, you know, for me and for most of us, we need to give very focused attention, a very serious effort. Um, but over time, it becomes, you know, a, a your normal life, that you're living a sober life. It becomes that positive habit, and your brain recovers and you're doing a lot of positive things and you're seeing the benefits. So the data does show that if people hit five years of, of continuous sobriety, they only have around a 15% chance of ever slipping. I mean, it's still one in seven. It's not insignificant, but it's lower, I think, than people realize. On the other hand, I have never forgotten. I am very strong, visceral memory of the chaos and the misery, and for me, uh, abstinence, I believe, is the only path, and I take it seriously. I don't play around the edges, so I don't struggle with it, but I also haven't forgotten. 
Yeah, that that was my next question because I know there's also, I guess, well, you call it a school of thought. I don't know, but they, you don't necessarily have to maintain abstinence. You can drink responsibly. Yeah, and there are some people who have a substance use disorder who are able to eat moderate later. Right now, we, we, we talk about substance use disorder today more on a spectrum, that there's mild, moderate, and severe. And we also talk about people who don't qualify for a substance use disorder, which basically is defined by significant negative consequences in your life, but still might have some, uh, the, the, the substances may be interfering with them living their best life. So I don't think the data yet knows whether people who are able to moderate, and it is a subgroup. I mean, many people with a substance use disorder do not, will never be able to moderate, but some can. And perhaps it might be those on the milder end of the spectrum, but they don't know that yet. Um, for me, when newbies talk about wanting to moderate, what I suggest is that the main thing is that they look pat in their past history because usually they've already tried that before <laughs> I meet them in the rooms of recovery. Yes. Usually it's been tried and failed. But if they want to try again, that they stay honest with themselves and admit when it isn't working and, you know, and make a new decision if it doesn't work. So how does the family, how do families fit into this? Because, I mean, you have, for instance, and I go back to Women for Sobriety or the other organizations. uh, And how does, if they have children or partners or spouses or whomever, how do they fit into those programs or don't they? So many programs offer for what's called friends and family support. There's Al-Anon, which is the 12-step version. LifeRing has a friends and family. Smart Recovery does. Uh, Hazelden does. There are online groups for friends and family support. So there are many family options. And I will also say that one reason I wrote the book and one reason I talk about multiple paths is to reassure the families because sometimes, let's say, LifeRing members get pushback from the family if they choose LifeRing because the family never heard about it. And so they're not sure that it's, you know, an honest recovery effort, an honest abstinence effort. And the reality is the only study that compared the different options, four of them, including LifeRing and AA, found they're generally equally effective. So what's important is that the individual find the right fit. But I, I try to make this, um, the increase the awareness that there are options that are just as viable as 12 steps in part to reassure the friends and family if their if their family member chooses one of the other programs the message is that the program has to be right for you and or your family or significant others in your life and that I go back to and there are those choices so you really do have to research this don't you you really have to have the information and then once you get the information then you have to share that and educate those significant others in your life, uh, you know, to participate, I imagine. Um, yeah, I mean, the good news is it's not 1994. You can yeah. Google all of these right. things. You don't today, have to go to right? the library. That's, that's, <laughs> that's the right. saving grace. You don't have to uh, call 800 numbers or send a check right. to a P.O. box. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's all available on the Internet. When, when someone new comes to me and say, how do I know the right choice? I really recommend just look at the six largest groups, read up on the philosophy, but also the meeting format because the meeting formats vary. And one or two will usually call that person's name. One or two will sound like that fits with my worldview that's a meeting format I think I'd be comfortable in or it sounds like my people are in that meeting and that is what I recommend it's so easy to research the groups today so what are the different meeting uh, formats 
So, for example, 12 Steps does a format generally, the, the primary format, is that they have a speaker share their personal story, and it usually takes between 15 and 30 minutes of the meeting, and then some of the group members will have time to stand up and share what's going on with them. LifeRing, for example, we don't do that. We don't have a speaker talking for a large chunk of the meeting. Our goal is to have time for everyone in the meeting to share, and we focus on current events, what happened last week and what's coming up in the next week. So drug history only is discussed if it's related to a current event. We don't do those long shares. And so different, different formats, uh, different groups have different styles of meetings. And some of them offer a variety. I mean, 12 Steps also, for example, will have step study meetings or other options besides the typical one I described. And so it is helpful for people to look at the meeting format and also to try them out. You know, just sit in on a couple and see which feels good to you, see which you think is going to best meet your needs. Uh, do the different groups have different demographics in terms of, let's say, well, women, but age, for instance, that uh, some, you know, some may be younger, older, uh, maybe more well-educated, not, you know, how does that work? There are some demographic differences. I know that for some of the alternatives, it is a higher education level on average, although, you know, an average, there's a wide range in the average, of course, right? And, yeah. um, and there are some differences geographically in different parts of the country. For example, uh, LifeRing has face-to-face meetings again in a number of sites, but we still don't have a meeting in Montana, and we never did. And so if you want an in-person meeting in your local community, sometimes 12 steps is the only option. And sometimes that's why people mix meetings. They might go in person to a AA meeting, but to LifeRing or She Recovers or some other program online. So there are a number of different demographic and sort of regional or, or geographic considerations that people have to consider when they make their choice about what's going to fit them best. Do you find that people share, or women share, that uh, they are going to these meetings, that they are getting help, share at work or with acquaintances, family, uh, well, family probably, but just uh, people in their neighborhoods, people that they associate with, or is it still something they do in the dark, you know, not letting anybody know that they're getting help? I mean, there's still a stigma around substance use disorder, particularly if it's not alcohol. Alcohol is more accepted, um, but it, I think it's gotten better. But for most people that enter recovery, revealing you, that your status, that you're in recovery, it's often a sort of a rollout process, right? You don't tell the whole world on day one. <laughs> Usually it's yeah. my, my spouse or my closest friends and family know, and gradually you might widen sharing that. But whether to share at a place like work is a, is a big decision, and many people choose not to, in part because they worry about professional ramifications. And that is one reason that now that I'm a retired federal judge, I can say anything without worrying about those ramifications. And so I do, in part, feel that I'm speaking for those who really can't or choose not to. You retired in 2020. What are you doing now? You're not a judge anymore, or maybe you still are That's judging. Right. And but. so I really do advocacy about recovery and multiple paths uh, to sobriety. So I'm on the board, as you mentioned, of LifeRing, and she recovers. I speak on podcasts, radio, television, at conferences. I have essays. I've published a number of essays 
in the Wall Street Journal, the Los Angeles Times, and elsewhere. And I have my book, um, which came out two weeks ago, From Junkie to Judge, One Woman's Triumph Over Trauma and Addiction. My goal really at this point is to just be of service and to, to make people aware of their options so they can find the right fit and increase their odds of success. I love the title of your book. I mean, that's that's definitely an eye catcher from junkie to judge. Um, did well, did you come up with a title? I, I always had that part of the title, and I I thought no publisher is changing this. It's just too good. Um, but yeah. the subtitle changed. Now the the one woman's triumph over trauma and addiction. I think it's a good subtitle because it really shows the whole path. Um, because the trauma and addiction were interrelated, and I did really need to recover from both. Mary Beth, we only have a couple minutes left, so um, give us a website and or websites to go to uh, that will give us more information about the book. It just came out, but also uh, some of the, these organizations that uh, you are sitting on the board of and uh, other um, facilities or places that people who need help can go to. Sure. So my website is junkietojudge.com, and my essays and other information is there. I'm on Twitter, at MaryBethO underscore. My book is From Junkie to Judge, One Woman's Triumph Over Trauma and Addiction, available on Amazon, all the usual sites, and your local bookstore can order it. She Recovers is sherecovers.org. LifeRing is lifering.org. Women for Sobriety and the other programs that I mentioned are a quick Google away. Great. And you don't have to go to the library. I'm repeating that. I shouldn't keep saying that. It's really easy if you have, yeah. So thank you so much for being on the show today and uh, good luck with the book. Yeah, good book. Thank well, you. Thank yeah. you. I appreciate you having me. Thank you. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Mm-hmm. 